0: Let's turn together in our copies of God's Word to the book of Colossians, continuing in chapter 2. Looking this evening at verses 18 and 19. Just now, let us go to the Lord together in prayer. Great God, our Savior Jesus Christ is so great, and we are so small and insignificant. His greatness is so rich and high and wide and deep, and we are dull and unwilling to comprehend it. So stir us up, O God, dwell in our midst and open our eyes to behold the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ for sinners such as us. May we glory in his all-sufficiency, his self-sufficiency, than whom nothing can be added, to whom nothing should be added, because he is the all-sufficient Savior. And minister now in the reading and preaching of your word to every heart as if they were the only one the tender mercy of Jesus Christ, that his grace would be glorified in this gathering. We ask in his precious name. Amen. Please stand as we read God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2. Let's begin at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath Amen, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, we came to a high point in Colossians, the believer's resurrection with Jesus Christ in his resurrection from the dead. That was in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, not the hope of bodily resurrection at Christ's return but resurrection with Jesus Christ when God raised him from the dead three days after his crucifixion. And throughout the rest of chapter 2, Paul is showing us the significance of union with Christ in his resurrection from the dead. Resurrection with Christ spells the full forgiveness of all my hell-deserving sins. That was verses 13 and 14. Resurrection with Christ is the death blow to the evil one and all of his wicked host. So now that the the devil has nothing to accuse me of in God's court of law, because I, as raised with Christ from the dead, now have a God-approved righteousness. That was in verse 15. And now in this section, from verses 16 to the end of the chapter, we see another wonderful aspect of resurrection with Christ. Being raised with Christ enables us to stand against and answer false teaching. It is not our cleverness our methods, nothing that we can come up with or do that will protect the church from false teaching. It is living person-to-person union and communion with the risen Christ that protects the church from false teaching. Christ is not someone I go to occasionally for help with narrowly moral issues, someone I look back on who did some great things for me 2,000 years ago, someone who saved me when I became a Christian, but who has no relevance for my everyday life. Christ is not someone I look forward to, someone way off in the distance who will return one day but has no relevance for my everyday life. He's not someone who fits neatly into one compartment of my life, one day of my week, having no influence over the rest of my life. Rather, resurrection with Christ brings new direction in life, new purpose in life, new resources for life. And more than that, resurrection with Christ brings new life, and it is out of that life that we go about all the rest of life. And it will take us the rest of Colossians to show in detail how resurrection with Christ makes new wives and husbands, children, fathers, workers, and leaders newness in every area of life. Here, in particular, we see with new eyes how the lifestyles, the way of thinking offered to us by the world are not simply wrong, though they are, they offer nothing of nourishing, life-giving value. So here in the middle of this new section, verses 16 to the end of chapter 2, in particular, this section deals with this question, now that we have newness of life in Christ, are we obligated to observe extraordinary religious practices? We started th- to think about this last time in verses sixteen and seventeen it 's in this section where we 're coming in contact more with whatever the Colossian heresy was this the specific false teaching that Paul is dealing with for the, the church in Colossae. now although we don 't know the details it 's safe to say that this Colossian heresy was the insistence that you must observe a combination of old covenant ceremonial laws together with pagan practices in order to achieve spiritual fullness and come into God's presence. So Christ is good, but he's not good enough. He will bring you close to accessing God, but in order to go all the way, you have to make your own mishmash, your own hybrid of spiritual practices, taking from the buffet of, of Israel's religion and the world's practices. This is not an outright denial of the, of the value of Christ. It, says, it does not say that Christ is of no value, just that he's not of all-sufficient value. It's more diplomatic, it's more polite than an overt denial. It says Christ is a way to God. He may be the best way to get you most of the way to God, but he's not the way. He is not the all-sufficient Savior and Lord. And Paul would have none of this for the church, insisting that we see the all-sufficiency of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Resurrection life in and with him is such a fullness of grace that every true believer ought to see everything else as less than emptiness by comparison. Now, last time we saw how Paul dealt with the Jewish aspect of the Colossian heresy, the the dietary and calendar laws in verses 16 and 17. Here in verses 18 and 19, Paul deals with the the pagan, the more worldly aspect of this heresy. So whether it comes from Israel or from the world, whether it comes from inside or outside the church— everything that distracts us from Christ is empty and lifeless. So let's look at this tonight in three ways. First of all, let's notice the command. The command in verse 18 that begins there, let no one disqualify you. This is the main thought here in these two verses, a command not to let anyone disqualify you, believer. That, that command there, disqualify, is in the present tense. It is an imperative, meaning it is the constant duty of God's people. Always be doing this. Always be on the lookout for anyone who would disqualify you in the Christian life. And this, this is a rich command. It, it, there's an imagery here. We could translate this command, let no one disqualify you from the prize. So the image here is of, of the decision of a referee or an umpire. A ref may decide against you. He may make an unfair call to your disadvantage. And in so doing, he robs you of your prize. He would declare you disqualified to receive that prize. So we could paraphrase, let no one judge that you should not receive the prize. Let no one take away, as a ref can, the prize of victory. So you could think there of a referee whose call on, a, on an important play would unfairly keep the team who clearly won from getting the trophy they deserved. And this is similar to what we saw last time in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you with respect to these things. Let no one find fault with you, believer. Let no one pass an unfavorable judgment on you, believer. You are beyond the world's judgment because you are in Christ. And this fits the entire context of the whole epistle. Going back even to to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So from these various angles and these various ways, Paul is emphasizing, as a broken record we could even say with reverence, the all-sufficiency of Christ. Don't let anyone disqualify you in these ways or those ways or whatever other ways. If you have Christ, you have all you need. So whether it's the the Jewish practices we saw last time, verses 16 and 17, abstaining from certain food and drink, observing certain Jewish holidays, those are meaningless because all those things were a preview of Christ. Now they're useless now that Christ has come. In that context, these are not reasons for others to say that you're somehow spiritually inferior, that somehow you're not doing the right thing, somehow you're not making yourself mark, marking yourself out as one who belongs to God, the opposite is the case. Same thing here for these pagan practices. Whatever they look like, abstaining from all these man-made practices, shows that you have all you need in Christ. These man-made practices, things that man comes up with to think that this is a good idea, a good way of helping you get more of God, these are not reasons for others to say that you are spiritually inferior that you're not doing the right things, that you're not showing yourself to belong to God in the right way because the opposite is the truth. One one commentator paraphrases all of this to say, let no one lead you astray by their philosophy, by their empty deceit, insisting on these spiritual practices because we know that true spiritual fulfillment is found in Christ. So don't be led away. Don't be disqualified by these things. So believers, since you have Christ, you have all that you need. You have the all-sufficient source of all grace for all of life. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise, making you think that you're somehow missing out in having only Christ. To have Christ is to have all for all of life and godliness. So this being the command, let's look, let's look next, secondly, to what I want to call lifeless lifestyles lifeless lifestyles there in verse the rest of verse 18. Let's read that again. Let no one disqualify you insisting on an asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Let's unpack these lifeless lifestyles here. What are the ways in which false teaching tells us we need to add to Christ? Well, this false teaching we see there in verse 18 is insisting on, insisting on their made-up practices. This word here, insisting, communicates taking pleasure in something. So here we're seeing a profile of of false teaching here that anyone who fails to see the all-sufficiency of Christ hates him, is not neutral toward him, is not cold, kind of indifferent toward him, could be better but not so bad. As Jesus says, if you are not with me, you are against me. So along with this hatred of him, as Paul by divine revelation shows us more of the nature of false teaching, along with this hatred of Christ comes a sick pleasure in insisting upon man-made requirements to achieve true spiritual fulfillment. So this hornet's nest of unbelief, hatred of Christ, self-deception, sick pleasure in man-made customs and ways of life, this is the 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 depraved psychology of false teaching. Notice that the first practice Paul mentions there, asceticism. Asceticism, this word can also be translated humility. This is not the good kind of humility, the kind of humbling yourself before the Lord. This is a false kind of humility, a so-called humility, because it's connected with the worship of the angels, which we'll see in a moment. So this angel worship, this idolatrous practice, as it's connected with what Paul tongue-in-cheek calls humility, we must understand this humility to be a false one, a so-called humility. So as our translation puts it there, this asceticism could also refer to ascetic practices, strange religious duties that are a part of worship. You can think, in, at least as an example of, of what monks did or, or, or used to do in, in their access to God. Severity to the body, um, going about sleepless nights, starving themselves, all this severity to yourself, these kinds of practices that if I'm a good boy or girl and do this enough, God will like me and allow me to come into his presence. You can think of the, of the, the pre-conversion life of, of Luther in this connection. So the idea here this asceticism and false humility in connection with the, the worship of the angels, the idea here is there is a sense of timidity, of, of trying to get into God's presence, not, not directly because he's too far off. He doesn't want anything to do with me. Timidity in God's presence through the angels. God's too far off. He, he's too lofty and accessible. He, he's remote and, and too, too distant. There's no way he could come down to my level. So I need the angels to help me, and I timidly come into their presence to try and help me out, and I do all these things to hurt myself so that they'll see this guy means business, and we'll, we'll tell God that this guy is serious and let him in in the door. There's this morbid sense, this this navel gazing, this timidity in this kind of worship of the risen, uh, the worship of God, this false worship. And in a sense, I can hope that as a believer, you can hear that this is just ridiculous. Who would ever be taken away by such things? Who would add to Christ in these ways? A timid approach to an angelic mediator and hurting of the body God made and gave me? As opposed to what we do have in Christ, full access to God through no one else but Jesus Christ, who himself is God. And there's no harm to be done to us to make God accepting of us because all the harm took place 2,000 years ago at Calvary when Jesus Christ was bruised for our transgressions and pierced for our iniquities. So Paul is referring here to how these false teachers take this sick pleasure in some type of self-abasement that involved these strange practices harmful to the, to the body that was ironically full of pride. You see that? Jesus is not enough, but I can come up with ways that God will accept me. It sounds and looks humble on the outside, but it's false humility because it is the pride of I must make my own way to God, not recognizing the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. Herman Ritterboss talks about how Paul has this unrelenting opposition, as all believers should, to a heresy that apparently caused the church to live in slavish fear over against the spiritual powers surrounding it. And it is from that slavish fear that all in Christ are freed from because we have boldness of access to God as Jesus has blazed the trail to him for us in his resurrection and ascension. Think more about the, the worship of angels there. One commentator, Murray Harris, helpfully makes this point. What Paul is countering here is not Christian humility, but that parade of misguided false humility or self-humiliation that imagines that God is so holy that he is accessible only through angelic mediation. And that is, the, that, that is part of the, the system of false teaching that Paul wants us to see is exactly that, is false teaching. God is not so high up and lofty and inaccessible that he can't come down. Rather, he is so high and lofty and inaccessible that the only way for us to get to him is that he did come down, all the way down, to suffer our hell and our place to bring us into heavenly glory. This is a false understanding of the, of the distinction between creator and creature, not that he's so far off that he can't be accessed, but that he is so far and so near and has made himself accessible to us sufficiently in his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ." No use of angels, no use of your made-up customs, no use of anything. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, and he, he is the only sufficient Savior. Another commentator points out how the, the honor of angels was probably something Paul talked about here to describe what the false teachers were doing, calling on angels as intermediaries of God who could be manipulated for protection and assistance— to ward off evil influence or or evil powers such as the fundamental elements of the world, the rulers and authorities, and the thrones and dominions. The the magical invocation of angels was a key element in folk religion at this time when Paul was writing. So all these things that people at the time thought they needed angels for help for, Paul's already set up to this point that Jesus is authoritative over them. He made them, they fell from him, and he still exercises lordship over them as risen from the dead. You don't need anything in addition to Jesus. Angels throughout Scripture are always worshipers with man, never to be worshiped by man. Remember in our Scripture reading this morning from Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees that that vision of the pre-incarnate Christ in his glory in the heavenly temple, what does Isaiah say? Woe is me, these angels are too, are too glorious. No, he is, he is wrecked by the presence of Christ, not the presence of the angels. Well, Revelation 19, in, in, a, in, a, in a different way, remember how the apostle John sees one angel and mistakenly falls down to worship that angel that he sees, and the angel immediately corrects him, you must, you, you must not do that, worship God. Angels never insist in god's Word that you go to God through them, but that you go to God in Jesus Christ. or well, think of how the author of Hebrews talks about angels in relation to Christ, Hebrews one and two and chapter four that christ's superiority to the angels is seen not in that he is too transcendent to be approached by us, and thus we need the angels to get us access to him, rather the transcendence of Jesus Christ is displayed in the fact that Hebrews 2.16, it is not angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. And because Christ is our merciful, sympathetic high priest, we can draw near to him with confidence, completely independent of other helpers. Because he is our merciful and sympathetic high priest. Last thing in this point I want to bring to your attention, there in verse 18 going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Now this phrase about the going on in detail about visions, this is more difficult. It could be translated something like which which the false teacher has seen upon entering. It could be a reference to pagan practices going into their false holy place and ecstatic visions that they would have and angels that they would have seen and special experiences that they would have encountered that because they encountered them and you didn't, well, they have greater access to God and you're kind of the spiritually inferior one and they're the superior one. They have those special mountaintop experiences and believing in Jesus, that's all well and good for you Christians, but if you want to get the real thing, you got to see the stuff I've seen experience the stuff I've experienced. That's the real ticket to to spiritual fullness, these visions, these feelings, these access to secret things. And Paul's insisting, maybe they saw those things and experienced those things, maybe not. That's not Christ. When you have Christ, what more do you need? Such man-made secrets, those are all about you. All about you feeling good, all about your experience, all about using God to make you feel good and special, not the glory of God. Don't worry about your experience being different from anyone else's experience, especially when you have Christ. And whether you feel like something's going on or not, whether you have the warm and fuzzies and the liver shivers or not, you have Christ. And that's all you need to worry about is if you have Christ. That's why such things manifest in pride. As Paul ends verse 18 there, those who insist on these things are puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. Another way to put this, they're they're baselessly inflated by their fleshly mind. Flesh being the reference to their sin nature there. Their their attitude, their, their way of thinking, is that they are groundlessly conceited. What may at first look like humility is false humility because they're insisting on their own made-up ways of doing things. They have an exaggerated self-conception. Those who, sadly, ironically, are talking about being spiritual are actually fleshly. They, they might be spiritual, doing all kinds of mystical things, but they're not capital S, holy spiritual, depending upon the risen Christ, the life-giving Savior. Now, let's end on a good note. Let's move to uh, Thirdly and finally, to see not the lifeless lifestyles, but thirdly, the life giving Lord. The life giving Lord, there in verse 19, which reads, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, Paul presents it there in the negative, but by implication, he's also presenting it positively, not holding fast to the head. So everything we've seen so far, these lifeless lifestyles, that's all just variations on the theme of you're not holding fast to Christ. But think what this means positively, believer, for you, you who do hold fast to Christ. This word Paul uses for holding fast to, such a rich word that indicates commitment to someone, remaining closely united to someone, seizing upon someone, holding fast to Christ in that intimate way. This word is used in, in Mark's gospel to talk about how the Pharisees held fast to man-made traditions. They insisted on, on their, their self-worship in that way. Mark also uses the same word for how the Pharisees wanted to seize Jesus, lay hold of him, and arrest him. That graphic imagery indicating how we are to hold fast to Christ. But think about how this word is used in the Song of Solomon. Think about in Song of Solomon 3, the bride dreams, and she dreams that she's with her beloved, and she goes after him looking for him, asking the the men in the asking the night watchman, Where is my beloved? And in her dream she says, Scarcely had I passed them, the, the night watchman, when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him, I took hold of him, and would not let him go. That is what's going to keep the church from being impervious to all manner of unbelief, all manner of false teaching, when you simply stick to and seize with a marital kind of fidelity to our heavenly husband, Jesus Christ. Paul uses the same word in 2 Thessalonians 2 to show how holding fast to the apostles' teaching helps out with standing firm. Same kind of thought that we see here. So these false teachers, not holding fast to Christ, are actually rejecting him, replacing him with another source of life, another source of of, of the reason for what they do. So again, the sad irony is that the very people who claim to have the access to God that you need to sign up for and, and you need to add to Jesus... The same people who have all the bells and whistles of the, of the spiritual life, the inside scoop. They claim to be spiritual, they're actually of the flesh. They claim to be humble, they're actually filled with pride. They may be doing all kinds of mystical, lowercase s, spiritual things, but the devil is a spirit, isn't he? It is all of the evil one, not Holy Spirit, God-revealed religion. So just as the bride in Song of Solomon could not rest until she found her beloved and took hold of him. In like manner, you and I will wither away and die if we do not embrace our life-giving Savior, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the fountain of living water, the risen man of heaven who gives the life that he has acquired to all who abide in him. And Notice that Jesus here is called the head. We've seen this rich imagery of the head already in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, how Christ is the head of the body, the church, and as head, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. As head, he is the one who opens up the way to life. He is the pioneer into resurrection life, and he leads all those who trust in him into that life. We've also seen how, how Christ is head even over evil spiritual forces, but head here. Head often in Colossians, as it is here, is is a reference to the special, intimate headship, the headship of redeeming love and covenant communion exclusively for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. He is head of his body, the church. And head here, in in chapter 2, verse 19, brings up another wonderful element of Christ's headship, what Lightfoot calls um, speaking of how Christ is the only source of spiritual life and energy. Christ's headship being the source of life for the body, the church. Notice how Paul shows us that, 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 that Christ is the source of this life there. How the body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Now let's not misunderstand and press too far the imagery of head and body. This is not a perfect one-to-one biological kind of example. We're not to think of any sort of monstrosity as a decapitated head being fused to a headless body. It's an image that is pressed beyond what we, what we know of head and body in the human organism. It's deeper and richer than a human head and body. The image here, again, is that as head of his church, Christ is the all-sufficient source of fullness of power and grace. He is the source of life unlike a human head, which is dependent upon the heart to pump blood to it, etc. Christ is the all-sufficient one. Christ is the one who gives the life that he has to his body, the church. He is the beginning of life, we saw back in chapter 1, verse 18, the pioneer into life, and he is in no way dependent upon the church for this life. It shows, as we could put it in contemporary ways of speaking, Christ is the total package, he has it all. As the hymn puts it, he is the fountain of never ceasing grace. The emphasis here is on the completeness you have in Christ. Not, he gets you most of the way there, you have to supplement a little bit. He is complete, and you are complete in him. You look nowhere else because the entire church and every member in it has all spiritual fullness in Jesus Christ. Let me re- read to you from from Herman Ritterboss about this rich imagery of the head, Christ's head. Christ's head means that he is preserver or savior of the body. The church has its origin in him, and that it therefore is dependent on him as the one who has prepared the way for it and to whom it owes its existence. Headship points to a relationship of beginning, which determines the whole of continued existence. The thought here is of of containment of the one in and through the other. By Christ's position as first, by his unique and decisive action with regard to his body, that occupies a determinative and dominant place. Christ is representative of his people. He has obtained abiding control over his people and continuing communion with his people. As head, he cleanses the church. He loves her, nourishes, and cherishes her. Think of Christ's husbanding, headship in Ephesians 5. The two are one flesh. As the head, Christ so much desires to unite himself by his Spirit with the church and to dwell in it because it is from him and it is one in him and with him. The church belongs to Christ. The church is is united to Christ and has all communion with him by his Holy Spirit. And that's just a taste of the rich imagery of headship of Jesus Christ over his church. It is from him and from him alone that we we derive all of our nourishment for this life and the life to come. Going elsewhere will simply unplug you from the only life source. But going only to him will get you more than all you need in the fullness of grace that is the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as, to put it historically, just as woman came forth from man in the first creation, so also the church came forth from Christ in a work of new creation. And as goes Christ, so goes the church. He has acquired newness of life, and in resurrection with him, we have that life in him. And it is in this life that he nourishes and cherishes and sustains his church all the way until the day when we see him face to face, as Isaiah 11 puts it, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Notice how Paul unpacks, as if that was not enough, this rich growth imagery. Who is it that grows from this source? The entire body, verse 19. The whole body. This is in the singular referring to the totality of the church. All the body, no part excepted. There is no hierarchy of one believer over the other in the church. If you have the faintest grasp of Jesus Christ, you have Christ. You have all of him. The whole body is nourished from him, not some more than others. The body, though many in parts, as Paul puts it here in this organic imagery, the body, though many parts, is one in Christ. And as unified In him, we are nourished together from him. Stephen Ball comments on this from the same thought in Ephesians 4. Christ, the head of the church, provides all of its nourishment as the individual members grow in love and the unity of faith and of the Spirit. So here in verse 19, we see at least two things. It shows us the organic nourishment and sustenance that all believers receive from Christ. As Christ himself says, He is the vine, we are the branches. The branch has no life giving nourishment in itself. It's not self sufficient, just as you and I are not self sufficient. But in Jesus, in the self sufficient, all sufficient vine, we are plugged into all manner of nourishment and fruit bearing grace. It shows that we also see here the unity that all believers have with one another in Christ. No super Christians in the church, no hierarchy in the church. We experience real peaceful unity with one another, not because we're easygoing, not because we're laid back, but because we experience and live out of this nourishment that we receive from our head, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, excuse me. These rich words there in verse 19 of nourishing and being knit together. This is referencing to how Christ the source is the supply of nourishment. He communicates all of himself to those who are in him, from his own life to, the, to give life to others who trust in him. The communication of energy to them, to bountifully furnish them. The imagery there is even of a, of a rich beneficiary who supports one who is in utter poverty. From the riches of our Savior come our riches, and we are nourished and sustained in Him. And not just individually, we are knit together in Him as His mystical body. This language there of the growth, the growth that is is growth from God. This is the language used in in the Old Testament of God's commission to Adam, that He is to increase that he is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with worshipers. And so that vision of God's creation being filled with God's image bearers to worship him, that's what the church has in the second and last Adam, Jesus Christ. We have the increase of grace that is of the order of, of the magnitude of a universal filling of worshipers that Adam was supposed to bring about. We have a world of grace in Jesus Christ, a world of nourishment in him. Paul uses the same kind of thought in Ephesians 2, how the new covenant household of God, comprising Jew and Gentile, in that household, Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you are also being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is Growth. This is what we heard this morning, bumper crop growth. Same word that, that Mark uses there in what we heard this morning. How the good soil that receives the word increases very much. That's the kind of growth that the believer has, that the whole church has, in connection with the life-giving vine, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The growth that is from God there, as he puts it, this is the growth of God, the growth that comes from God. It is divine growth, not stuff that you try to drum up for yourself, not from your own ingenuity or or cleverness. This is otherworldly growth. This is growth that cannot be taken away by any of Earth's schemes, any of the schemes of the evil one. This is heavenly sustenance provided from the heavenly man, the risen Jesus Christ. Now, what do we do with this? as we've seen throughout Colossians, the all-sufficiency, the self-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The call here is not to be distracted by anything that is not Christ and to keep going to him. You may say, "I, I do believe in Jesus. I do go to him. Keep going to him. Keep going to the source. Keep abiding in the vine. Keep on going to him, Again and again and again. He is the fountain of grace, the bottomless well of grace, and he always has more grace. Think of this from the angle of the the prodigal son, Luke 15. Remember how this foolish son blew his inheritance and went off to live in the, to to feed with the pigs while he lived in his father's house, a, a natural born son of the house and he traded it all to eat with swine. Remember what the father said when the son came to his senses and returned to him? This my son was dead, but is alive again. Being far from the house, being far from the father, the son was living in death, gnawing on the dry husks that the pigs were gnawing on, having no sustenance outside of his father's presence. But when he returned to his father, it was life. It was nourishing, life-giving life. To be near unto Christ is life. To be far from him is death. And this is not happy, clappy, you'll always have a smile on your face kind of growth in life. This is life whatever the circumstances. This is life in the midst of hardship. This is life through tears. This is organic growth, whether it feels like it's taking place or not. I don't think any of us remember going from being in the womb to being an infant to being a toddler and growing. I don't remember those things taking place, but the Lord was growing me at every point. So you believer, as you stick to Jesus, you stick to his word and commune with him in prayer in the ceaseless back and forth of spiritual communion with him, you are growing Whether it feels like it or not, you are growing, and that growth will manifest itself unto His glory. Listen to the the prayer of the Puritans from the Valley of Vision. This one is entitled, Fullness in Christ, an appropriate way for us to close. O God, Thou hast taught me that Christ has all fullness, and so all plenitude of the Spirit, that all fullness I lack in myself is in Him, for His people not for himself alone, he having perfect knowledge, grace, righteousness, to make me see, to make me righteous, to give me fullness, that it is my duty out of a sense of emptiness to go to Christ, possess, enjoy his fullness as mine, as if I had it in myself, because it is for me in him. That when I do this, I am full of the Spirit, as a fish that has got from the shore to the sea, and has all fullness of waters to move in. For when faith fills me, then I am full. That this is the way to be filled with the Spirit, like Stephen, first faith, then fullness. For this way makes me most empty, and so most fit for the Spirit to fill. Thou hast taught me that the finding of this treasure of all grace in the field of Christ begets strength, joy, glory, and renders all graces alive. Help me to delight more in what I receive from Christ, more in that fullness which is in Him, the fountain of all His glory. Let me not think to receive the Spirit from Him as a thing apart from finding, drinking, being filled with Him. To this end, O God, do Thou establish me in Christ. Settle me, give me a being there, assure me with certainty that all this is mine, for this only will fill my heart with joy and peace." May that be our prayer for the glory of God and the good of the church. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.